0: The idea that racing makes money and that we are spending all this time and energy to make a ton of money in the race department. Um, I don't wanna say it's crazy, but it is. We don't, racing is expensive. There are a lot of kids that race. There are a lot of kids that are involved. It feels expensive for the parents and we totally respect that and understand it. They're the most expensive skis for us to build by far. Almost double, sometimes triple the cost of a retail ski to build. We have to employ a race manager in every country.
1: And we are back and live. I'm Jimmy Krupka, and welcome to Arc City. podcast is brought to you by Spyder, the U.S. Ski Team's official supplier, and it's supported by U.S. Ski & Snowboard. Man, it's been too long. I missed you all. Arc City missed you. Arc City, I missed Arc City. Here I am at long last. The reason for my uh, vacation really was just getting a semester of school done, so I'm almost halfway done with college, which is very exciting. I'm here in Park City. I'm actually for the first time in a legitimate recording booth. The Park City Library has one of those. I'm rehabbing my leg and hopefully skiing, fingers crossed, by the end of July. So this episode was recorded two months ago, so it's gonna be pretty similar to all my other episodes in terms of format, but I have some ideas up my sleeve, so stay tuned for that and get ready to buckle up for the rest of the year. Before we get ahead of ourselves though, there's this episode, episode seven, First, you're going to hear from Jake Stevens, who was my rep at Rosneal for a few years before he transitioned to a bigger leadership role in the company. So we get to pick his brain on the inner workings of the ski industry. And originally, I was kind of thought this episode could be boring. Didn't know how the interview would go. Turned out great, actually. Some wonderful, wonderfully interesting nuggets in there. Then you're going to hear from two young ski racers from Burke Mountain Academy who designed a product and founded a company called Thrival Muscle Recovery. And if you're a skier, uh, i.e. if you have experienced back pain, this is going to be one to listen to. And at the end, as always, I will read the mail. And oh, one last thing. If you like this podcast, then subscribe. You could even throw me a five-star review. Be honest, though. Only if you feel that way. Whatever. (laughs) Whatever. And the more reviews that I get and the more subscriptions I get, the more people that Arc City can reach. And that's the goal more people, more content, more education, more interesting stuff. Anyway, Jake Stevens, without further ado. Jake Stevens, welcome to Arc City.
0: Wow, thanks, man. Good to see you, Jimmy.
1: Great for you to be here. Uh, So first off, you've worked at Rosendale Group for how many years?
0: Uh, This is my eighth year. Uh, Eighth year.
1: And and what roles have you had?
0: Uh, I was the ski racing manager for my first, uh, I don't know, six years, five, six years. Um, Kind of fluctuated with some other roles within racing manager, but oversaw the race department uh, really for the U.S. and kind of, uh, integrated a bunch of stuff into Canada and kind of oversaw what was happening from the North American market for racing.
1: Gotcha. So I wanted to talk to you today because I realized most people have no idea what goes on in the ski industry, let alone the, they're like the racing ski industry. So when you and I spoke earlier, you told me about the three R's, racing, retail, and rental. And I think that's a great jumping off point. So I'll let you explain those from here.
0: Yeah, um, I mean, the way that our brand functions and a lot of brands function uh, as we look at kind of divisions, right? categories within our brands. Uh, Even within categories, there's categories. Uh, In the racing world, um, we have, you know, our three major categories, which is, you know, our elite racing, uh, which will be your uh, athlete series or what all of the race kids know, right? The hero line um, in in our division. Um, So hero is your kind of, tip of the spear, highest level world cup down to 12, 10, nine-year-old racing kids. Uh, Then you have uh, the master series, which is another line of race inspired skis, uh, but for maybe a larger demographic, people that want to be on true race skis, but maybe not 65 millimeters underfoot. So something that's like 70 millimeters still has that same energy, same power. Uh, And then you have your elite series, which uh, really your elite, series is kind of your um again racing inspired but much more forgiving Uh, something you can go spend the whole day on and kind of cruise around um 75 to 80 underfoot uh big side cut very easy to turn on piece product so that's a division within a division right uh and so when you break it down um you know my new role after i've left the race department is um i'm the alpine category manager uh, which is kind of a fancy word for product manager for north america i oversee all hard mm-hmm. good products uh so really i over do oversee racing products still but really more focused on that retail and rental side of the business um, and so when you get into those categories, you start to see even more segments. Um, you know, on-piece carving, all the way up to a 118 underfoot powder ski. Uh, mm-hmm. Then you go into the rental world, and you've got everything from your first-time, never-ever skier to someone that really is a you know high-level skier flying into Park City, Utah, to ski from you know France or flying in from South America or wherever they're coming from. And they don't want to fly with their skis, so they're a high-level skier, but it's still a rental product. So, um, how do you balance all of those things, and uh, and how does each of those pieces kind of come together to make a brand?
1: Cool. Okay. And so from here, I wanted the other thing you mentioned to me when we talked earlier, was how, you know, people think, how do the skis get developed? Where do the technologies come from? The surprising thing to me was that there are technologies in some of the um, retail skis and even powder skis, I think that come from racing. And it seems like a lot of the technology just stems from the race development.
0: Yeah, it's uh, for our brand specifically. I mean, we're racing a very powerful racing brand in the sense of, um, you know, the global picture, what we're doing. Uh, But internally, uh, our brand is driven by racing. Um, so we put a lot of development dollars into the process of developing high level race skis, but a lot of those technologies are jumping off points for the rest of our line. Uh, so yeah, we spend, you know, huge amounts of time, effort and energy developing race product, but then how do we take that race product and put it into our retail product? Uh, and it kind of works in those segments where it goes from, you know, racing and you know, it's proven in the race world. And then we start to prove it in kind of that master series, elite series. And then once we see that it's a, a commercially viable product, um, we start to test it in skis, you know, like the new sender line that we just launched, um, or, or excuse me, the black ops line sender skis in within that, in, in that lineup. Uh, mm-hmm. when you look at that ski, it's a 106, you know, center TI 106 underfoot that ski has damp tech technology, which is a rubber pad that we use in our race skis to dampen the skis, right. To mm-hmm. make the tip of the ski smoother. That ski has that, uh, it's got, uh, LCT, which is called line control technology, LCT. And we can dig into this deeper if you want to, but it's actually developed from the dlc which is the dynamic line control uh and that's the piston that you see on the front of tessa Worley's ski right she skis almost consistently yeah. with that ski uh or that piston we've had other athletes test it and try it and, and they really like it it's a you know we can like i said we can dig more into it but yeah that technology was then translated into an internal technology which is an actually a, a rubber or uh uh kind of plastic abs material inside strip of strip of material that runs through the ski uh, that adds dampness and adds a kind of vibration control we actually use that in our sender line so we're putting our, our, our black ops lines so we're putting in our powder skis uh, the center yeah. has that technology inside it Almost every ski in our line has that technology inside it. So it's things like that where we build this kind of prototype crazy idea, start to build it, implement it racing. It works in racing. And then now we see it top to bottom in every ski in our line. Uh, it, it's pretty interesting how we pull that that technology.
1: Yeah, that was cool. Well, the first thing that was super cool is that the actual technology from racing is in powder skis, which no one ever – Thinks that that happens, but the second thing I wanted to touch on was you talked about Tessa Worley and this piston thing. And if if you haven't seen it, it's kind of wacky. It's literally like a like a pole, like well, piston really that goes from the toe piece to the tip of the ski, right? Like, can can do you know about how that development came to be and how it works?
0: Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's um, it's really cool um if you haven't seen it physically in person um it's it's a wild looking thing um, yeah. we're used to a ski that's you know you've got the binding and then you've got a flat you know top sheet that goes all the way up to the tip um about you know the ski has the tip of the ski and it kind of flattens out right about where it starts to flatten out uh contact point really where the ski is physically if you were to set it on the snow uh where that ski is contacting without any pressure uh, that's sort of where the mount point is up by the tip. Uh, then it comes back and it actually integrates into the, into the plate system. Um, so it's built into the plate system. Uh, you have the binding and then you've got a piston that's about, uh, I don't know, maybe two inches, uh, maybe a little bit bigger than that long. Uh, and it is a full shock absorber. Think, uh, you know, front fork or, or rear shock on your bike. Um, it is, it is really that type of system, oil-driven uh, with air. Um, you know, there's a whole bunch of components internally in that. Uh, that that rod runs out of the piston up to the tip of the ski and attaches. Uh, the whole point of the system is to create uh, the uh, or to stop reverse camber. So when you slow down uh, a World Cup ski racer, any ski racer, but it's easier just to search World Cup ski racing, right? And watch it downhill. Uh, watch one of the guys at the Hanukkah um, or watch a GS, you know, uh, you know, as the athlete kind of bounces through the turn, right, the ski engages and then releases every time the ski releases pressure underfoot. Uh, and comes off the snow, the ski gets a bounce. The tip of the ski gets yeah, a bounce.
1: It bends the other way.
0: It bends the other way, right? Uh, as that ski bends the other way, you actually have lost any ability to create contact with the surface of the snow. When it comes back, your ski actually drops elevation. Uh, as we know with any you know ski racing mindset, uh, elevation is your friend, right? Every time you lose elevation, the further you get below the gate, the more you're fighting against gravity, uh, the more you push against the mountain, the slower you're going to be, you know, below the gate. So, uh, the idea here is that stopping the tip, uh, moving the opposite direction, uh, down the hill, uh, or the reverse camber, if we can slow that down, we can slow the elevation drop down. Uh, so the idea was to stop that. And it is one of the wildest feelings. I mean, if you don't have, if you haven't had an opportunity to ski on it, we actually make it as a as a retail product. You can buy it.
1: Really? Yeah,
0: you can buy the master ski. Uh, we don't sell it on the actual fist ski, uh, but you can buy it on the masters with the piston on it. Uh, pretty expensive product, <laughs> but. Yeah it's one of the craziest feelings you'll ever feel. You are glued to the snow. You go over rollers and the ski wants, the tip wants to dive, but because of this piston, it doesn't. And it just, you stay totally engaged to the snow, rolled up on edge. There's no loss of elevation. Uh, And that's the idea behind that piston uh, is to keep that, that engagement above the turn and not lose elevation. Same idea with the LTC, which is, or LCT, which is line control technology. by dampening the internal parts of the ski and, and, and basically separating the core into two segments, right? You have core, you have LCT, uh, and then you have core. When the vibration comes through the ski, it hits this rubber insert. Um, we actually build it with rubber and with metal. So you actually get vertical metal layer with rubber in between it. Uh, it stops the vibration from getting across the entire length of the ski. So you don't get a uh, torsional vibration, right? The vibrations come through the ski. They work down the ski, but they can't go across the ski. So it stops the bouncing and the the, the uh, reverse camber. Gotcha. So, yeah. so I the
1: this piston, had, I saw <laughs> Henrik Christofferson trying it out it seems like it must be because it doesn't let the ski really release that easily it seems like it must be really is it too aggressive for the men let's because none of the men use it and only tessa Worley uses it on the women's side i think does she still use it she's tiny yeah she uses it that's what she uses every pretty Mm -hmm.
0: much every day uh petra skis with it once in a while as well um we've had some other girls try it one of the issues with it um is is really the weight of the product uh and it's it's the the swing weight uh that causes the majority of the issue so it's it it is really aggressive it keeps the ski ski really engaged so there's no you know it's a bit harder to release the ski at the end of the turn uh but moving it from you know right foot to left foot as fast as you can uh, is pretty hard to do because of how heavy the product is
1: oh gotcha
0: because of how Tessa skis and how kind of almost loopy she skis, uh, it allows her uh, to move cleanly. The way that a lot of the guys skiers is so much, you know, not as loopy and very quick movement from foot to foot, uh, kind of through the transition of the turn, uh, that swing weight was a little, just a little bit too much for them. So a lot of the guys enjoy the feeling and really like what they're getting and, and train with the product. Uh, just for that feeling, that fully engaged, gripped feeling. But when it comes to racing some of these venues, how hard the surfaces are, how steep the venues are, um, it just is a little bit too heavy.
1: And so this makes me think, because it's such a wacky, futuristic device, and people, whenever they think of the future, they think of flying cars or whatever. But when you think of the future in racing skis, you know, it can't always just be the same thing because we, you know, 30 years ago, we didn't even know that shape skis were faster than straight skis. So what is, I mean, I'm sure this is top secret stuff, but is there anything you can tell me that Razi is working on that is going to be big or is hoped to be big?
0: Yeah, I mean, we've played with a lot of different things, right? Um, We've seen it, I mean, even when I was was racing as a J3, we were called back, you know, U16s. Uh, my first year U16, we were on straight skis. My second year U U16 or J3, um, we were on shapes. We were on the shape ski. So drastic change. A couple of years later, we had you know computer chips inside the ski that were supposed to absorb energy. Um, those were the first real pieces of technology that came into the shape ski world. We started playing with lift height, off the, how high off the snow you could be. Um, we started playing with side cut, how big and how you know how big the tail was, how big the tip was. Um, rules obviously started to come into play pretty heavily, which they needed to for the safety of the athletes and for kind of the uh, parameters, right? It's F1. When we look at ski racing, we look at Formula One. Uh, there has to be rules. We all have to kind of compete on a, on a relatively fair playing field. One of the things that they haven't really restricted is what we can do inside the ski. Um, obviously, that piston is an outside the ski thing. Uh, we had to go through a huge process with fist to prove that it wasn't going to come off and you know, stab someone on the side of the trail, hurt one of the athletes, yeah. do something crazy. Um, so, you know, I think weight is an issue. So you're not going to see a ton of um, external products being built. Like gadgets
1: athletes. or something. You start yeah. to
0: see Small things, computer chips that, you know, really do now that we've come with these, you know, smaller nanotechnologies and all that, you'll start to see kind of cool stuff like that. A lot of that stuff is going to be data driven. So it's going to tell you as an athlete, what you're doing and help coach you in some respects uh what you'll what we'll really and you won't physically be able to see it uh is internal uh changes playing with different types of materials you know uh, we can control foams we can control metal layers wood layers rubber layers that type of stuff and the combinations of different parts and pieces and how we make up a ski is really where you're going to see the biggest changes. Uh, and as we play with more, uh, technologies, we get better with, you know, plastics, plastics is a, is a tough word to talk about because, you know, the environmental piece of what we're doing as an industry, uh, but we're getting smarter and we're figuring out how to use sustainable materials and, and play with that type of stuff. So while sustainability is really more on the retail side, you're going to start to see it more into the racing world and what we're doing there. Uh, but, you know of course i can't talk about some of the stuff we're planning yeah. ideas Not that we're planning but the carbons and the rubbers and the woods and the metals and the plastics they're all different you know we're we're progressing at a very fast rate um uh, where we've come in boot ski boot technology uh is insane you know the back in you know 20 years ago 25 years ago the ab- the ability to control the durometer which is the flex of the plastic was pretty far off. You know, a 130 from my company might be completely different than a 130 from other brands. Even within our own brand, certain flex plastics wouldn't have been the same. Uh, we are so much better at controlling precise flex patterns. Um, you know, dual core technology, which is in our racing boots. Uh, you know, that came out just a couple of years ago. Uh that was born in racing and and you know flowed into the retail world again, but that's mm-hmm. The idea of being able to inject two different plastics uh different flexing plastics together at the same time creating a sandwich uh kind of layering uh you have a stiffer plastic on the outside a softer plastic on the inside you get the rebound from the stiff plastic and the dampening from the soft plastic so it creates a sandwich right two plastics injected at the same time stuff like that
1: because I, you know, I was talking to one of my coaches who's, who knows a bit about boots and he said there are th- literally thousands of different kinds of plastics that they could choose from any year to build the boots out of, which, which is crazy to me. It just seems like how do you test all of that? But when you talk about all these technologies, there, there have always been rumors flying around on the World Cup circuit like that Marshall Herscher back in the day was actually skiing on a Nordica for a while and not his brand we sponsored on atomic or more recently that some head athletes were skiing on rosie boots so how do you kind of get your copyright or how does all of that work because i'm sure when one ski is working well every every brand just goes okay how can we build something similar to that like do you have to get a patent every time you develop a new boot or ski
0: uh, yes and no it's really hard um you know, it's hard because patents have to be pretty different uh, to patent something. It has to be pretty different. And we're working within, you know, kind of, well, first of all, we're working within very strict rules on uh, the ski side of things, uh, the boot side of things as well. There's there's less rules, but there's still, uh, you know, rules we have to follow. Uh, even in the, in the bigger uh, picture of the ski industry, uh, skiing in general, you know, the lug, the toe and heel lugs have to be certain standards. Um, and you have to you have to do certain things in certain ways. Uh, so, you know, it's very hard. That was part of one of the things with, with racing. We all copy each other. It's always been um, kind yeah. of who's fast and okay, that's the direction. You don't know what's inside the ski. Um, I guess to start with your first point, the plastics. Uh, plastics is wild. Uh, there are a lot of plastics. There's lots of formulas, lots of people out there mixing their plastics. Uh, Every brand has their own plastic. You can feel it. If you take every brand boot and put it on a table, uh, you can actually physically feel and see uh, the different materials. Uh, You may not know what they are. And I might not be able to tell you exactly what plastic they use to build their boot or what combination. Um, We're very secretive about our plastics. So, um, you know, to the point that some of the head athletes uh, were using Rossi boots. I mean, as you know, Rossi and Lang are, are, are one brand. Um, so we are together, we do everything together. And uh, so the race boots are exactly the same from Rossi and from Lang. Uh, for sure, there were head athletes using those boots, and we can go down that path another time in another segment. Uh, yeah. But the thing that they don't have uh, as the head boot started to evolve and they were started to you you know figure out their technology um, and how they were going to build a boot uh, that looks eerily similar to the boot that we have uh, the thing they don't have is our plastic technology so there's a big difference there you know we have the first of all dual core that is a patented process by us right so um process that we use that they aren't using uh, The plastic makeup and how we mix our plastics, very different from what they're doing. I have no idea what they're doing, may have really no idea what we're doing. Uh, We don't allow them in our factory and they're certainly not gonna let us go into their factory. Uh, So how you mix the different plastics, the different materials that you're using, is a, is a really interesting process. Obviously something we're not going to share. We're not going to put it out there. Like, Hey, here's that
1: like a top secret thing. Is that like only certain people in the company get clearance to like, yeah, I mean, it's,
0: it's not like uh, a CIA, CIA, where i you know, I need a badge to get in. Uh, There's certainly, you know, there's, it's, it's a bit of a fortress. You're not just waltzing into our, you know, our facility. Uh, And you're definitely not walking into our special, you know, boot, uh our prototyping facilities are yeah. um, testing you know we do a lot of testing on the product you're not going to get to see that type of stuff uh and then we've got rooms where boots are stored and we're we're playing with different prototypes uh you're not getting in there um so yeah it's it is pretty secure in that sense <laughs> it's <laughs> yeah. almost
1: cia level yeah yeah, students, yeah. Students can- i wonder if there'd be any spies like on like yeah. watch out for spies from head or yeah, atomic exactly. or something. Like
0: putting buckles on boots and trying to figure out what is this. <laughs>
1: yeah, that's funny. But yeah. but so now when you have all this product, like there's got to be a way to test it. And the thing that's always f- been infuriating to me about about skiing is testing, and it's so hard to test objectively because sometimes something feels good and it's not fast, or sometimes you're just skiing well and it doesn't matter what you're skiing on. So can you walk me through, I'm assuming that the the high-level World Cup athletes are the ones testing all of the product. Can you walk me through how that process goes and their relationship with the company?
0: Yeah, it's really uh, pretty interesting, actually. Uh, there's a couple pieces to it. Uh, the first piece is uh, when we are developing something, we have engineers that are specifically developing race skis, right? They're working on programs like CAD um, designing what a race ski. We have rubrics that we understand. We know the rules, tip, tail, waist, uh, thickness of ski, that type of stuff, right? So we understand these are the things that we um, have to be within these guidelines. We know what materials and what layups generally work. Now we can play with the length of the metal, the width of the metal, um, things that we've learned about the torsional stiffness, the stiffness of sidewalls, that type of thing. Right. So that kind of goes into the first development piece, uh, is just building a ski and then pressing that ski, uh, in one of our presses and saying, okay, let's see. We actually have one uh, guy that ski is on all of our race skis, uh former racer, um, guys just has great feel, uh, understands what we're trying to do and understands every model of every ski that we've skied on or he he skied on or we've ever had, right? So he can go out on um, ski A and ski on it and have ski B through D with him, right? And he goes and skis on A and that's his reference. This ski is like, um, let's just start with a junior program ski, right? Uh, this GS ski is like by the junior program and it could be like a 182 junior GS ski. And then he can say, okay, this is our new version. And here are three different versions of the new version. When it goes to the world cup level, he's same guy skiing on that ski. He's getting input from our technicians, right? We have factory technicians that work for the company, uh, working with guys like, you know, uh, Henrik or Innerhofer or, you know, um, Lewick or one of these guys. Right. So yeah, come in, um, and say, uh, we are feeling like the initiation of the ski is great, but we're losing the middle of the turn or we're losing the, you know, the end of the turn and we feel like it's the tail stiffness or we feel, okay, great. That's a feeling oh, okay. that, had. uh, is it a reality of, all of our athletes are we hearing it from a bunch of athletes or are we hearing it from one specific athlete uh then we go out and we test something with maybe a stiffer ski, with stiffer tail let's call it uh something that we've created that's you know thicker or stronger material thicker metal uh the athlete that was struggling maybe we bring them in and say does how does that feel um uh, and then we put it on a clock um uh, it's not always about feeling as any athlete will. Yeah exactly yeah not always about feeling um uh, sometimes it's faster to feel loose a lot of times it's faster to be loose right uh, so we always have things on a clock we're always testing in speed suits um you know when it comes to development i'm part of the retail and junior program racing development so when we go out and develop a junior program race ski we go ski on it um, after it's gone through its initial kind of early prototype phase, we have the reference, we have the the, the new versions, two, three different versions of that ski. We go ski on it so we can feel around, balanced. Okay, this ski feels great. Then we go out to junior programs all over the world and mm-hmm. we test it on the clock against skis that they currently ski on and just kind of get that general feeling, uh, feedback from the coaches. Everything so the
1: junior the junior program is something because i was wondering is if they just take a version of the world cup ski and then just throw it down to the junior program but the junior program is actually developed on its own as well yeah in a way own. so yeah. 193 gs ski
0: 188 gs ski uh 165 slalom, 157 slalom um, are all uh renditions or iterations of the world cup ski so okay uh, we really focus on trying to keep our product line tight. We don't want to offer six different models for a junior program scheme. So we call it the uh, kind of N plus one. So World cup is N uh, just in our company. That's just the issue yeah. from it. So N is world cup. It takes one year for that product to get back to junior program. So, uh-huh. When a ski is proven, and usually we're somewhere around January when we make a final decision, this is the right product. Because of how many skis we have to build, uh, it takes a full year for us to get that into the racing as a, you know, on the wall retail sold ski to the junior program. We build one version for junior program. Obviously, the World Cup is always going to have a couple different versions. Uh, Not all of them are fast, right? We have... 10, 12, you've seen right in your career, different versions, different models, skis that we say, trust us, do we like them? They're fast. And you say, I don't know. I don't really like this ski. I'd rather have this version. What we try to do is kind of narrow down all the different conversations. And we even use Europa Cup. So N plus uh, 0.5 is going to be Europa Cup. So after we kind of decided this is a world cup ski and we're happy with this world cup ski, the 0.5, timeline so you know somewhere in february march so that ski was developed in the summer about you know half a year later five to six months later we offered to europa cup a model that we're happy with and then that europa cup model is then offered to you know kind of all that europa cup level globally uh and if that model continues to be positive we don't have a ton of people saying i like i'm skiing on my old ski i like that version better then we press go on the junior program, and we have to build, you know, thousands of pairs of that ski. Um, yeah. So that's why we try to keep it pretty precise. We have one pretty consistent World Cup model that will become the Europa Cup model, and that will then become the junior program model. Gotcha. And then the,
1: and then the thing that's support. that, yeah, this trickle down effect. But the thing that that sticks out to me, I know that every mold for a new Shape of a ski is expensive, and and creating all this product where it's going to all of these sponsored athletes, so it's just given away, um, and then you add in the professional contracts, and you add in the budgets for the racing reps. the 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 whole total of the racing budget at Rossignol or at any company has got to be huge, and you I think you were telling me earlier before we before the show that. The the racing budget basically just breaks even, so that the the cost, the what your your income from all of the race skis sold is the same as, you know, the budget.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's pretty insane. Um, you know, we use racing, and it's and it's pride for our brand. We love it. Um, it's it's something that everybody in our company at some point in time has worked with, for, or part of the race department. Um, you know, when you go to our headquarters in France, there's this, you know, awesome office that you walk into and it's racing. It's not just Alpine, it's Nordic, it's, you know, some free ride. It's, uh, you know, Europa cup through the world cup, all the different pieces, junior program, all built into this. We have a facility that builds our racing skis right in our headquarters. You can walk into that office and feel it big glass windows and in the main entrance of our facility that look directly into the race department, Um, not into like the secret stuff, but into the the presses and you get to see skis coming off the line. And, you know, it's really a pride piece for our brand. Uh, The, you know, the idea that racing makes money and that we are spending all this time and energy to make a ton of money in the race department, I don't want to say it's crazy, but it is. We don't. Racing yeah. is expensive. Uh, there are a lot of kids that race. There are a lot of kids that are involved. It feels expensive for the parents. And, uh, and we totally respect that and understand it. They're the most expensive skis for us to build by far. Um, almost double, sometimes triple the cost of a retail ski to build. Uh, we have to employ uh, a race manager in every country. Uh, so think of all the racing, you know, the big racing companies, look at a world cup start list and see all the, all the different nations. We have a racing manager for both of, for both of our brands, right? Cause Dina Star Lang separate was yeah. right. We, all the product is exactly the same. So like in the U S in Canada, we share our racing managers do both brands, but in some countries, uh, it's separate racing managers. Uh, that's just to cover junior program. Uh, so, so much cost. Yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 it's astronomical, right? Uh, we have junior program criterias to try to balance that. Uh, at the end of the day, what I'm looking for from my race guy, right. Or my, my race manager, uh, is to not lose money. Uh, so yeah. get, get, you know, get him to travel the country, be able to go to places like world juniors and an offense where he can support his junior athletes, you know, like traveling with you, like I did, yeah. uh, to certain events, uh, so that he can get the experience. You feel supported. Uh, the biggest piece for us is athlete support. Um, so if it costs us more money to be able to support our athletes and be there, uh, to be involved with our athletes, then so be it. That's part of our game. Uh, yeah. at the end of the day, what like we talked about before, it's about developing a retail customer. Uh, And my goal when I was running the race department was to kind of instill that spirit of skiing. Uh, I want you to be a Rossi athlete or Dina Star Lying athlete from, you know, six years old until you're 85 years old. Uh, How do I create that energy and that excitement about skiing? So whether you race up to college, and then you go to college, and ski racing is no longer there. I want you to be excited about skiing on the weekends through college, after college, when you have kids. I want you to be excited about skiing, and and that's where we make our money. It's the retail side, it's the rental yeah. side, it's that side of things. Uh, what you know, that's really where it's driven now. Uh, but racing at and the s- end, and of the day, so
1: the racing, yeah, it's it's like you spend all this money. On The racing and it barely breaks even And the and at one point I wanted to to bring out quickly that you mentioned was People complain that race skis are expensive and you're like hey You know race skis are extremely expensive just to make so and we're not making money off you like people think they're getting chipped No, like your people aren't being made um, You're not being made billionaires off of race skis, but it's the it's the If you didn't do the whole race program if you didn't all spend all this money and all this effort Rosneal wouldn't have a brand because it's built around the racing and the competition and and that's the whole brand. It's almost like you know it's all advertisement too. Yeah. So as we start to wrap this up, I wanted to ask you a question that I've been dying to ask, which is Kesley and there are other brands that have done this too, but Kesley, which is traditionally, a, I don't know if they were once a racing brand, but in recent years, they've just been a free ski brand and they're trying to basically start from scratch a race program. And they've got a couple guys in the World Cup, but it just seems so hard to, with one or two guys, develop a fast ski and then somehow get juniors interested in jumping on the ski early.
0: Yeah. Uh, yes, they were a racing brand. Um, a lot of brands that, you know, I don't know about even. Uh, people will bring up to me that were before my time of racing uh were race brands and every once in a while they poke their heads up and try to get involved and uh you know it's it's pretty uh it's pretty difficult to get involved
1: i imagine yeah
0: a high level uh you know junior program there are ebbs and flows of junior program you'll see brands over five six year periods where they'll go high and they'll go low uh and they're the big brands that don't really leave uh and it's it's really because of what they've done over the last you know 20 years 30 years uh uh, in it it's really hard to create a race brand and and sell i mean stokely did it a couple years ago and they're you know, trudging along doing their thing, uh, gaining ground. Um, yeah, so Marco
1: automat skis, stuckly. So there's, exactly. you know,
0: exactly. you'll see it, um, it'll start to grow. Uh, it's a, probably a five year process. If they can get through the five year mark, uh, they've got athletes that are top 10 in the world, uh, and they really start to focus on the junior program. Uh, at the end of the day, it comes into mass production. Uh, it matters what your goals are, how many skis you want to sell. We have dedicated line. Uh, of that builds our junior program race skis. And, and when I say junior program, I'm talking like uh 185 GS ski and down and the 150 slalom ski and down. Uh, we have,
1: well, because wait, actually, if I can interrupt you here, because you, yeah. something that just popped into my brain that you said a couple, a, a little bit ago uh, was when you were talking about the mass production of the skis and, that's the thing. And then it and then it connected with some with what we were talking about earlier. Like Kesley's not gonna make money off this, are they? Like they're putting they're pouring money into this to make a little bit of money, but maybe it's just like for the brand and for the passion for ski racing, I guess.
0: Yeah, I mean it's uh it, it's a hard road to go down. Um there yeah. are definitely breaking points. I've actually had these conversations with, you know, they call them micro brands, um, some of these smaller ski brands. Um, I have a cousin that owns a uh, snowboard brand, Um, and he has, you know, had a great conversation with him about, you know, in my mind, I'm big business, right? Um, Rossignol sells thousands and thousands of skis, not just racing skis, but skis for every, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, every aspect of skiing. And I said to him, you know, how do you even make money? And he, well, the way he looked at it was kind of these breaking points, right? And I don't know, I don't remember the exact numbers, but let's call it, you know, 500 pair of skis. He, Him and his wife or 500 snowboards. Him and his wife can build 500 snowboards over the course of a year. Uh, and it could be even way less than that. It could be 100 snowboards. Once he got to 750 snowboards, he had to hire on a new employee. Once he got to 1,000 snowboards he had to hire four more employees because now the volume and how he was, and these numbers again, are not, are are not accurate. Um, It it really matters the goals. Uh, Are they looking to sell, you know, 35 or 60 pair of race skis a year, you know, probably not worth the mold processing. Are they looking to sell 12,000 pair of race skis a year? Uh, That's going to be difficult. And you know, how, what's, what are the goals of what they're trying to do at the end of the day? No, they're not going to make money on racing, but their process might be just to kind of boost the, the brand the
1: brand. Yeah.
0: Just kind of get out there and be said. They may not even, I don't know if they're building junior program, race skis, I haven't looked into what their business model is yet to see. Uh, maybe they're just going after woke up and, uh, and doing that kind of thing. Interesting. Well,
1: as we wrap this up, the question I always ask my guests at the end is basically, you can say whatever you want, and uh, if you want to mention your sponsors, if you want to say something you just really wanted to get to and say we didn't get to, or just offer some advice to people listening. Uh, Got anything?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think I have two things. One, uh, remember, racing is expensive. Uh, It's a tough sport, Uh, but uh, we're in it with you we're, we're here for you. Um, and it's a passion of ours. Uh, we have, we're dedicated to the sport and we always will be. Um, so, uh, that's a, that's a, that's a big point. Um, and really important to us as a brand. Um, the other is just finding that passion for skiing. Uh, it's not just about racing. Right. Um, I got trapped in it. I've seen a lot of athletes over the years that I was running the race department, that phenomenal ski racers and just got beat down. Um, the system is really difficult. I don't know the numbers, but it's like less than 1%
1: to, it's a you know, get, sport.
0: yeah. Right. And this, yeah. <laughs> uh, find that passion, uh, and, and ski and ski a lot. Uh, if you're a race kid, go get a pair of free skis, you know, and get a pair of powder skis, get something, Wider underfoot. Uh, Bashing plastic every day is not healthy for you. Uh, Get out there and shred a little bit. Now, whether you're growing up, you know, I grew up at Sugarloaf Mountain in Maine, and I look back on it, and to be honest, I regret it. I didn't get enough days of just generally uh, going out and charging and just. That's
1: a great mountain to just shred, yeah. Right,
0: and there are mountains all over this country, all over the world, that people should just go out and be shredding on, and uh, find some passion, find some. find some fun and, and, and push yourself. So I think that's the biggest piece for me is, is just enjoying this sport. Cause it's a cool sport.
1: All right. I love that. You heard the man go out and tread Jake Stevens. Thanks for stopping by arc city.
0: All right, Jimmy. Thank you very much for your time, man. It's cool.
1: right cam smith and doom rainville the founders of thrival muscle recovery welcome to arc city
2: thank you for having us jim
3: yeah it's great to be here
1: great to have you guys here in arc city so you guys went to burke together and then you're skiing together this year is that right
2: yeah we're pgs at steamboat gotcha yeah
3: doom Doom was a junior in at Burke, and I was a senior and then uh, I PGG last year Yeah, and then now this is my second and dooms first year at Steamboat
1: so you guys have become this kind of dynamic duo in this new company and I'm sure like most entrepreneurs you've got your origin story down to a pretty concise nugget at this point, right? Like can you can you just lay that on me?
2: yeah, so uh, I was a senior at Burke and then the pandemic happened and then school got canceled so I had to go back home in Canada and then cam was season got canceled too and basically had nothing to do with her life so we decided to learn CAD modeling because we thought it was cool uh-huh. and we like just like 3d printing basically just like yeah yeah so explain
3: yeah it. so basically we doom and I both learned the CAD modeling and then at the same time we bought 3D printers, and I had that in Florida. I still hadn't seen Doom in over a year, but um, we just had ideas, and we wanted to like play around with it, and this whole uh, Thrival thing didn't just start on... like It didn't just like, oh, we're going to set out to make a company. It gradually happened where we had the idea, and then we started prototyping, and then the prototyping just led to, geez, we have something here, and then yeah. that's when we really... After three months of prototyping, we're like, geez, we really have
2: to. Yeah, like, like we have to take advantage. People benefit of it. from our product, and then we decide to manufacture it. Exactly.
1: And it sounds like the you know, so the uh, for all, for those who don't know, this device is kind of um, like how, how can you guys describe? Because we, we have a bunch of people just listening; they can't oh. see this thing. I guess they can look it up later. But can you describe it quickly, and what it does?
3: Yeah. Thrival is an adjustable tool that allows you to reach a lot of different muscles in your body, including your psoas and your glutes um, from an advantageous angle that we we basically made a product that mimics the hand of a therapist. So the goal was to be able to find those tight spots in the right way. And to do that, you need adjustability and you needed slanted heads. So we came up with this tool that basically tries to achieve muscular recovery.
1: The thing it reminds me of, it's basically like plastic. It reminds me of like those climbing holds you see in the gym. It's basically like two plastic, one of those, and there's different shapes and they allow you to kind of massage different muscles on your own. Um, But it's a pretty simple design, but it, it, it sounds like it's super effective. And the idea, right, is that you're reaching one of the things you can you can massage which apparently leads to a lot of back pain and skiers is the psoas and so i, I and i'm curious about this because i asked one pt i worked with about the soas muscle which is basically like attaches to your spine and your pelvis and it's so deep in there he was like y- you can't really get to it but i guess this device can kind of get to it huh
3: yeah the soas is a it's a very deep muscle it's actually a back muscle and but the problem with it is that you can't reach the psoas from the back because your ql is over it and so it basically attaches in your lower back your lumbar spine into multiple vertebrae and it attaches as this band that goes through your stomach area and then right right on the inside of your hip bone and then it attaches to your uh, femur, the head, the trochanter of your femur. And, and when it gets tight, like when you, when you do a long car ride and you get out of the car and it feels like your ribs are like stuck to your, uh, to your hips and you like stand up and you can feel that stretch. That's your psoas actually. And for me, it actually, it was really causing really bad back pain for me. And, um, yeah, it, it can be a, it can be a nasty muscle if it's really tight.
1: Yeah, and and back pain. Any ski racer knows back pain is a real problem. It's the reason why, like you know, Ted retired because his back was so screwed up. Um, so, I mean, it's I mean, it's just a cool device. It's why I got you guys on the show. So, the, the 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 most interesting part of all this is when you guys first made. I mean, you're just two guys out of high school. And then you, you start this company, you start producing these things, and suddenly, um, I mean, you can take the story from here, but suddenly you guys have got an established competitor like coming down your throats.
2: Yeah. So basically, these competitors in the same market as us realized we had a better product and decide to try to bully us. And,
3: yeah. Yeah. They are they, a competitor, uh, so right Um It really stems from our product being really good and because of that they wanted to just drown us before we could even really get rolling and uh, a lot of yeah a lot of bullying tactics but um, and they like the guy the
1: founder like flew to Vale and tried to get tried to sponsor a bunch of ski racers right
2: we 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 took a picture with River at Copper at Mm -hmm. nationals but we posted that picture on Instagram only like two weeks later. Two weeks later, and we when we posted it on Instagram, we had tagged Copper Mountain, <laughs> and two days after, that's when the owner of right flew to Copper because he thought we would be there, and he, he tried wow. to scare us, obviously. But then, yeah, <laughs> we weren't there
3: even. Yeah. So that's what was uh, confusing about the whole situation. He probably thought we were supposed to be there, realized we weren't there, and then that's when we started. We didn't we didn't even know this at the time, but that's when we started getting nasty messages over Instagram
2: and stuff from different burner accounts. Um, and he tried to give his product to every ski racer there. He tried to sponsor the Vail Club and- US ski team. US ski and, team.
3: And uh, yeah, we just like to thank you, Jimmy, and all the ski teamers and all the Vail kids and everyone, the ski community has rallied around us and we are so appreciative of that. Um,
2: We're so grateful.
1: Yeah, Yeah, because I, I, I heard, I know the ski community rallied around you guys. I tried to help the best best I could. I sent a message to all the US ski teamers, like, "Hey, like, just so you know, like, the, uh, the these guys, the the Thrival guys, are the our own, you know, they're our own kin. They're from the ski racing community, and they're trying to make it against this bigger, more established competitor. Uh, and it, it was cool to see this the ski racing community rally around you guys." and it's it's just funny how back back pain brings us all together.
3: <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it it's been it's been a really interesting journey with that. Like we've like as you said, we're just two high school kids um, we, we haven't been to college yet. We're just postgrads and this process has been we've learned everything from yeah. how to manufacture, how to 3d print how to market all these different things, and this is just another piece of the puzzle. We learned that um, when you make something good, people pay attention, and it's just part of the process. And it's really been eye-opening for us. It's it hasn't really distracted us actually from uh, creating future products and mm-hmm. um, doing what we have to do, like getting to Amazon Canada and Amazon Europe. It hasn't distracted us from what we're focusing on as a as a um, company, but it's just, it's just an interesting facet of what our learning experience has been.
1: So my last question is, do you guys have a patent
3: on
2: the trademark? Well, we have, we have, that's patent pending. We, we apply for it.
3: Okay. And
2: we should have them pretty soon.
3: Yeah. Gotcha. So, and those are functional patents as well as design patents. I don't want to get into the, the details of it, but we, we have very comprehensive, uh, design and functional patents and that's that's for the product and then also for so much better i know we did a name change but so much better we are we still have that um and we're we're, we fully intend on uh keeping it Mm -hmm. um and we fully intend on going to the us uh uspto and uh going after it so we're not giving up on it
1: very cool guys well um you can go to Thrival dot uh, They're available on Amazon, and check them out on social media. There's some really cool videos I watched of you guys in the warehouse packing the stuff yourselves. Um, so, yeah. guys, uh, thanks for being, thanks for visiting Arc City.
2: Thank you so much for having us on Arc City. <laughs> yeah, it was a pleasure,
3: Jimmy. We just got a letter,
1: we just got a letter, we just got a letter. Wonder who it's from? All right, let's read the mail. A Ken says, I spent an hour in my garage sharpening and waxing my skis while listening to your Ralph Green podcast. Another great podcast, and I've listened to them all. Hey, that's a great place to listen to the podcast while doing skis uh, or while driving. Why not? And Oh, he also says, Ken also says, I live in northern Vermont. I've been to a bunch of races at Cochran's, and he mentioned that because he listened to the Ryan Cochran Siegel episode. A Tom emailed me. He's from the UK, and we emailed back and forth a few times, and he mentioned that he's just getting into the depths of a real understanding of ski racing and says maybe you could include a beginner's guide in a future podcast. And he asked a few questions. I'll list them off right here. Why do skiers seem obsessed with slack lines? Well, slack lines are, you know, a great balance tool, and skiing is a lot of balance. Two, what is the main difference between skis for different disciplines apart from size? Well, if you don't know this, it's the radius of the ski. More aggressive radius means that the tip and tail are wider compared to the middle of the ski. Three, why do some skiers wear gum shields? So I guess in Britain, they call mouth guards, like like what a boxer or a football player wears, uh, uh, gum shields. So some, athletes wear those in skiing because it helps prevent against concussions. Four, what do the terms tech skier mean? Tech skier is someone who skis slalom and GS. A speed skier would be someone who skis Super G and downhill. And number five, how many sets of skis does the average World Cup skier own? Technically, the World Cup skier doesn't own them. The, the company owns them and kind of leases them. They kind of keep their skis on, from their company under wraps. But you know, a high, a top 15 uh, level slalom skier on the World Cup will have throughout the season probably at least 20 different pairs of skis. And they'll probably travel with upwards of 8, maybe 10. I bet Hersher has like 30 pairs of skis that he's tested. Anyway, that brings us to the end of the show. As I mentioned earlier, subscribing and reviewing are awesome ways to grow the population of arc city and you listeners are the ones that help me grow it whether by word of mouth or by shooting a text off to someone hey this podcast isn't that boring anyway (laughs) until next time dream of skiing or if you're on snow rip it up enjoy the snow i will see you when i see you my name is jimmy krupka and thank you for visiting arc city